Welcome back to a flat pack history of Sweden. We're going through all of Swedish history in podcast form with some Swedish phrases thrown in for free along the way. We're at the start of the 16th century and things are kicking off once more between Denmark and Sweden. They are indeed and we are here to tell you all about it. I'm Chris and my co-host is Orsa. We'll do a recap of what's been going on so far after the phrase of the week, I think, and this time it's vabuari. Uh, Again, just like last time, it's less of a phrase and more of just a single word or a term this time. Yes, and a very suitable one at that, since we are in the month of February when this episode is released, and vabuari is a merge of the word vab and the Swedish word for February, februari. So vab plus februari becomes vabuari. But what is vab? Yeah, and vabuari kind of sounds like an Italian name, doesn't it? So oh, I met vabuari down at the pub the other day. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. Vab itself isn't actually a word. It's an abbreviation of the phrase vord of hooked barn care for a sick child, which I'm pretty sure we've mentioned relatively recently. Um, I can't remember why or when, and I can't be bothered to go back in the notes, but I'm pretty sure we talked about this uh, relatively recently. And it refers to a law from 1978 that gives Swedish parents and carers of children between the age of 8 months to 12 years the right to have paid time off work to be at home and look after their child if it's sick. So the parents get to take time off work, their employer can't refuse them, and they're paid for that time via a thing called the parental insurance system, uh, the same state benefit system that pays out when a person is on maternity leave uh, or paternity leave. And uh, they don't get 100% of their salary, they get 80% of their salary. The practice of using this right to be off to look after your children if they're unwell is so common that the acronym VAB has become a word in Swedish. It's uh, even got a verb version, at VABBA, to VAB, meaning being off work to look after your sick child. Because this is something parents do not just if the child is super sick and, say, in hospital, but also if the kid has got a cold or a stomach bug or generally anything that prevents it from going to preschool or school. Yeah, and this is important because Sweden also has very few stay-at-home parents. Uh, So that means that one of the parents has to take time off to be at home with their kid. And also, and I both have office jobs, and it's definitely not uncommon that we get messages from colleagues in the morning that basically says, sorry, got to vab today, or most of vab by dog, (laughs) uh, because their their kid is sick. And usually it's just that. Normally, uh, if it was in England, it's like, oh, I'm so terribly sorry, but unfortunately my child has become sick and quite ill because of the blah 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 and therefore I will have to postpone our meeting today whereas in Swedish it's just like got a vab yeah Swedes are very (laughs) direct and to the point Uh, so you know and why say you're sorry this is uh, this is your right it's not a terrible thing to have to do if the kid is sick the kid is sick But what's the deal with Vabuari then? Well, because February uh, is a time of year, it's quite cold here, quite snowy, and so there's a lot of colds and flus going around, and not just kids, but people in general, like, you're quite sniffly maybe this month. So it's more common to have to be off work to look after your kid 
this month. So that's given rise to the phrase of the week, vabuari. Vab is more common during February, uh, so the month has colloquially become known as vabuari. Now, that being said, it's not like Swedes don't work at all during February because we're all busy looking after sick children. First of all, not all Swedes have young children. And second of all, I don't think our kids are any more sick than other people. But yeah, people obviously thought the practice was common enough to coin the term vabuari. And it's not like parents are off all the time. In 2022, the average Swedish parent used nine days of VAB over a year. So it's less than once a month. Yeah, and we're going to move on and go back to the 15th century and not get bogged down with details uh, like the currently ongoing debate in Sweden about women using more VAB days than men. You can, uh, if you Google VAB uh, Sweden, I'm sure you'll find. Uh, I know uh, the BBC did a big piece about it a few years ago, so you'll find a lot more information about this uh, practice uh, online. Great, uh, but now it's time to jump in our time capsule and head back to 16th century Sweden. In the last couple of episodes, we've covered the eventful time when Stansturer the Elder was in charge of Sweden as regent, and then Hans became king briefly before being kicked off the throne pretty soon straight afterwards. Siege expert Hemming Gad took Stockholm from the Danes and even took Queen Christina hostage for a few years. Not that Hans himself was that fussed as he was busy having fun with his mistress, who'd moved into his castle with him down in Copenhagen. Yeah, maybe some marriage counselling would have been needed for the two of them. But Stan Sture quickly died and was replaced by Svante Nilsson, who hid Stan Sture's body and disguised a servant to look like Stan Sture, so another faction couldn't proclaim someone else regent before they'd returned to Stockholm. So that was a pretty crazy story. A lot of the following years focused on war and around Kalmar. Hans went cray-cray when he executed a load of local peasants and merchants there in the Kalmar bloodbath, but the city eventually fell thanks to the help of a fleet from Lübeck. But things turned against Sweden at the end when Hans's son Christian attacked and ravaged southern Sweden, leaving Svante Nilsson powerless to resist. This led the Swedish council to demand Svante Nilsson's resignation, but they were too late in sending the letter because by the time they decided it, he was already dead. Someone else who died around the same time was King Hans. So uh, when we get to 1513, we now have Sten Sture the Younger as regent, who managed to beat off competition for the role from Eric Troller, who was briefly regent for a couple of months before him, and also King Christian II of Denmark, who's desperate to become King of Sweden too, something his dad Hans was only for a, a few years. Now, before we continue on from there, we should look briefly at that internal conflict between Erik Trolle and his supporters in the council and Stensture the Younger and his faction. There was some good thoughts about this period in a book by English historian Michael Roberts. Uh, there's actually an English guy writing about Swedish history in English. That's not too common. I thought that was our niche market to do. Yeah, I know. And he's not talking about World War II, ABBA or the Vikings. He's <laughs> talking about something a bit different. So yeah, it's cool. This guy is an interesting chap, even though his work is a bit old by the time we get around to reading it. 
We'll actually quote him a little bit later on in the episode, but in general, it's been uh, interesting to uh, to read about, and we have probably put a link in the episode description so uh, you can find his book if you're interested in it. A key bit of background for this period is how we saw how Stensturer the Elder and Santa Nielsen tried hard to build up land and castles, crown fiefs and private estates for themselves so they could rely on, uh, on this for providing their own economic and military basis for controlling the country. However, what really annoyed the council was how they started to look at the question of the regency becoming a bit of a dynastic plaything. Robert says that this is one of the reasons why the opposition councillors made their ultimately fruitless attempt to support the candidacy of Eric Troller for regent when Santa Nielsen died in 1512. Yeah, because having a regency pass from father to son would be quite disturbing. Hereditary rule in Sweden has usually meant something bad. Even if this was the case on a number of occasions, the kings still had to be formally elected, and we did see plenty of times where someone else was elected before a son was eventually elected to take over after their father. Yeah, so it'd be like if Mian also had a kid, I was king, and then we elected someone else from down the road to be king, and then our son becomes king. It's not necessarily directly in a straight line, but lots of sons were elected to be king at some point. Yeah. Also, that wouldn't happen because it would be me who'd be queen, and we'd have a daughter, and then she'd be queen, and then her daughter would be queen. I'm imagining a matriarchy of my line. We're still gonna, it's going to happen in Sweden because the next two monarchs are going to be queens. <laughs> it's going to happen in Sweden. Like, I was going to be queen <laughs> no. and then have a daughter. I was like, wow, you knew something I didn't know. The dynasty of Elsa. Yeah, so this um, lack of hereditary uh, certainty explains why there was a bit of back and forth between the two regents at the start of 1512. And it is a bit of a theme we will see later on in this episode and into the next one. But for now, Stansdor the Younger is in charge and the theme of change will flow throughout Sweden in the next couple of years. Yeah, so basically the whole reason why Eric Troller was appointed regent for a short while first was because the other councillors didn't want Sweden to become a hereditary regency with Svante Nilsson's regency title being handed on to his son. Uh, even though that did happen uh, after a little bit of political wrangling, a lot of the councillors aren't happy at seeing this happen. One of the first things Stenster or the Younger does is head to Finland to ensure he gets the support of the nobility there and keep an eye on the ceasefire that Sweden has with Russia. He also takes steps to ensure that the council would be a little bit more supportive of him than they might have been by allocating them all shares in the new silver mine at Sala. So that's a lovely little bribe there, giving them loads of money or future money. The issue between Denmark and Sweden, though, keeps getting pushed down the line, with extended ceasefires and political half-deals being agreed upon over the next few years. Uh, there's loads of different instances. They keep meeting and postponing the war and a solution to the Kalmar Union problem. But at one particular meeting in Copenhagen, there were noblemen from all three countries of the Union. And New King Christian wants to use this to get officially recognised by all three countries after becoming king in Denmark and Norway. So he's 
happy that some Swedes are going to attend this meeting too, and he might even get his hopes up, wondering that these Swedes might want to join him and help him claim his place at the head of the whole of the Kalmar Union by becoming king in Sweden too. So he's hoping that this is what's going to happen. But alas, this does not happen. Christian, despite being a major player in recent years, has limited influence in Denmark itself, but is actually strong and powerful in Norway, where he had been based for a number of years before taking the throne after his dad Hans died. Now, Christian was a smart and skillful politician, but he was extremely stubborn. He could turn from calm to raging in a blink of an eye and knew how to hold a long-term grudge. So he probably wasn't super happy to hear that the Swedes' message to the meeting was essentially, lol, we're not going to appoint you as king of Sweden. Yeah, so I don't think they're possibly that blunt, but you never know. But they were quite clever. Whilst they were in Copenhagen for the meeting, they never met Christian face to face because they knew that Christian was an angry guy who would just end up shouting at them and bullying them. So the meeting was done by messenger, sending letters back and forth between the groups of the people in Copenhagen negotiating. It's like those scenes from films set in high schools or even primary schools where they write notes to someone and pass it to a middle person which basically say tell Christian I think he's smelly and a rubbish king well tell Carl that he's the smelly one and I am the king ha 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 (laughs) something like that I mean this is an incredibly inefficient way to conduct a meeting I must say you know when uh, some people at work wear wear a t-shirt that says this meeting could have been an email (laughs) it's like the opposite this email chain could have been a meeting Exactly. Oh, God, I don't like uh, inefficient meetings. So this is, I'm annoyed now, 500 years down the line. It wasn't just the Swedes that were quite happy to have this sort of email chain of a meeting because the Danish council didn't really want to meet Christian face to face either as they wanted to ensure they kept control of the finances of Denmark, something that Christian hadn't yet had a chance to claim for himself. So they were busy playing games with the new king too. Wow, I can only imagine the level of discourse going on here. Because the result of it is essentially nothing when it comes to Sweden, as the ceasefire is extended once again and there is little development elsewhere. How surprising that this highly inefficient note-passing meeting didn't lead to anything. Uh, But locally in Denmark, Christian does manage to negotiate access to the treasury, but has to sign away a bit of power he thought he would be able to keep in domestic politics. Yeah, Christian isn't starting off on the front foot here. He's having to agree to a lot of changes that are making him quite angry right off the bat. But let's leave the fuming Christian for a while and head up back to the home of Sten Sture the Younger, because shortly after he takes over from the Regency, there's a period of both political and religious change in Sweden. Let's start with a few comments about the political situation, as we know that there's still factions within the council that don't really fall in behind him. For sure, because even though he has only been in power for a year or so, there are some worrying signs for the nobles in the council. 
Stan was positioning himself as young Herr Stan, uh, explicitly referencing Stan Sture the older and creating a strong feeling of Swedish patriotism amongst the peasantry, which was a real advantage for him. But most importantly, when it came to the nobility, in the long run, his vision, as Michael Roberts says, was in contrast and incompatible with the nobility as a class in itself. Yeah, and here's a bit of a longer quote from Roberts, because we think it sums up quite well what Sten is about when it comes to his view of the Regency and how monarchy should behave. It does have some great words in it too. Instead of government by a ring of family magnates under the nominal control of a distant and discreet monarch, which had been the idea of the golden age of King Christopher, Stenster the Younger seemed to be aiming at a monarchy free of trammels, one that was authoritarian and strong, and a state which should be more than a mere conglomerate of immunities and privileges held together by a tacit recognition of the new advantages of mutual forbearance. Stenster the Younger indeed represented the new idea of the state as it was manifesting in France, England and Spain, and in him the ideas of parliamentary despotism were already implicit. These programs subverted the only foundations upon which the Kalmar Union could continue. The unconditional power would never be supported by the nobility, and the Sturer's nationalism had no place in a proper Kalmar Union. Just one question, was the, quote, golden age of King Christopher actually in the no, text, it was. It or was. did you make that up? No, it was in. This is what I mentioned in the last episode when I got excited saying that I found this quote. I just think it's surprising how we keep coming back to the former King Christopher because you love the fact that you have a namesake in the line of uh, succession. No, it's true. Yeah, that was a bit of a confusing quote in some ways. It was lots of complicated words that was quite hard to follow. So how about you summarise it a little bit? Yeah, Stan Sture is becoming a bit of a tyrant in the eyes of the nobility. He wants to use the support of the peasantry to legitimise his rule and use this to remove power from the nobility. So if it was this bad for the nobility, why isn't there a mass uprising against him immediately? Well, the main problem is that Christian in Denmark was exactly the same kind of monarch that Stansdure the Younger wanted to be. He also had support of the peasants, a strong dislike of nobility, and wanted to be an absolute and hereditary monarch. So Stensdor the Younger's political enemies in Sweden saw two people of the same kind when they compared the two men. When looking at their ideal monarch, they might have been willing to have Christian I, the current Christian's uh, granddad, as king of the Kalmar Union, when compared to Stansture the Younger, who was more traditional in the sense of working with the nobles and all that. But they don't want the current Christian, uh, who is this absolute monarch who wants hereditary rule. And they saw how peasantry of Sweden would turn against anyone seen to be putting Danish interests ahead of Swedish interests, thanks to years of nationalistic and anti-Danish propaganda, started by Stensture the Elder and continued by Svante Nilsson, and now really being put into action by Stensture the Younger. 
he also gave away castle counties to members of the council to keep them happy. So there are some big bribes going on here as well. I think this was an important point to make now. So keep this in mind as we go forward with other developments in Sweden. As there isn't really one explicit event with Sten Sture at the start of his reign as regent that builds up this resentment, it sort of builds up over time. But now to relations between the regent and the church. First up, our warrior diplomat Hemingad leaves or is kicked out from his role as Bishop of Linköping and is replaced by a chap called Hans Brask. The following year in 1514, Stensterer the Younger's main opponent in the council, the dominant Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson, steps down from his position as Archbishop. And this is really important because he's stepping down. He hasn't died, which is the normal way an Archbishop leaves their job in this time period. And he's been around for around 40 years as a key political player as well as the Archbishop. So he's really seen it all and had a hand to play in a lot of these developments. Indeed, and it is important because he steps down in a bit of the same way that some Supreme Justices step down in the US, because by resigning before he dies, according to canon law, he gets to help to select his successors. And him stepping down is done for political reasons. He wants someone that thinks the same way as he does to follow him, the way some Supreme Court justices resign during the presidency of a political party that they lean towards politically so that they can make sure to be replaced by someone from that side of the political spectrum since it's the president of the United States that names Supreme Court's judges. So this is sort of what happens here when Gustav Trolle, the son of Erik Trolle, the guy who was briefly regent before Sten Sture, he becomes archbishop and immediately assumes a very important role in Swedish politics. Amongst other things, at a meeting in Rome where he is formally appointed archbishop, the Pope actually allows him to retain a private army of around 400 men. So imagine an archbishop these days having 400 armed soldiers at their disposal. Uh, but that's what Gustav Trolle had. This, along with the regular power of the church and its role in political life in Sweden, will ensure that Gustav Trolle is the main opposition on the council to Sten Sture the Younger, balancing the views of the council. He's only in his mid-twenties at this point, and not super educated in church matters, like someone like uh, Hemingad was, but he was well-connected politically. Yeah, and this is the only reason why this is happening, and you can see it's a massive ploy against Stenster or the Younger by putting his main opposition in charge of the archbishopric. And yeah, they're, they're giving it to the son of the person who was regent just before him. So it's a massive political game going on here. And it's going to be crucial to the developments almost immediately, because if you thought this new archbishop would have nice and friendly relations with Stenster, then you'd have to think again. This appointment and Sten Sture's actions will kickstart a series of events that will soon start to tumble out of control. Because yes, the two men already dislike each other because, yeah, Sten Sture kicked out his dad from the Regency. 
The appointment of the first new archbishop in 46 years, though, did give Stenistura a political opportunity that hadn't been afforded his predecessors as regent or kings in a long time. This, of course, revolves around money and land, like it always does. And the thing is that the archbishop has a powerful seat of residence at a place called Almarasteket. Yes, Almarasteket, or rather, more importantly, the small island there called Stekesön, because Almarasteket is a strait in Lake Mälaren at the northern side of the lake that you would have to pass through if you travelled by boat from Stockholm to Sigtuna, for example. On the small island there was a fortress that was built way back in about 1370 by King Albert of Mecklenburg called Almarasteket's Boy, or Fortress, uh, or slightly more imaginatively, St. Eric's Fort, named after Eric the Holy. This fortress burned down in the 1430s by forces loyal to Eric of Pomerania, who didn't want it to fall into the hands of Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson. But then comes the important part. Because in 1440, the archbishop at this time was given permission to build his own fortress there, which was completed around 10 years later. And this is relatively close to Uppsala, and then became a residence for the archbishop and a seat of the church's political and economic power. This was a strategic location, as it also commanded the main land route from Stockholm to Dalarna, and so was therefore very important. It wasn't just important for people travelling on the lake. Merchants and burghers from Stockholm and miners and traders from Dalarna were quite unhappy as the various archbishops of Uppsala had been blatantly interfering in their trade between Stockholm and Dalarna and the Bergslagen, the mining region of Sweden, and they were using the fortress at Almarasteket to do all of this. Remember the whole thing about no new taxes that Stensture the Elder had followed? Uh, we talked about him uh, actually sticking to what George H.W. Bush didn't stick to, the whole read my lips, no new taxes. Anyway, Stensture the Younger realizes that he could potentially be helped economically if he had control over the castle, over Almarasteket, as he could use it to siphon off some money for himself. Yeah, and therefore not have to raise taxes and annoy people. Exactly. So after Gustav Trolle is appointed archbishop, he goes off to Rome to see the Pope. When he comes back home, Stensture lets him know pretty quickly that, by the way, I have claimed the land around the fortress for myself. Because after all, way back when, it was originally a royal fortress, and it would become that once again. He digs up the original agreement that said that the monarchy had gifted the castle to the archbishopric in perpetuity, but Stensture says, well... Perpetuity ends now, this is mine. Uh, this kicks off a bitter disagreement that is going to start to tear not just the council, but the country apart. 
Gustav Troller is obviously not amused, and before Stensturer can go in and take the castle, he reinforces it with cannons and begins to gather up supplies in case it's sieged. Stensturer, on the other hand, asks the council to start a siege of the castle, which they refuse. They don't want to get involved in this drama. So, of course, Stensturer goes after his enemies on the council who refuse this request and arrests those who he thinks is the ringleader of a conspiracy to replace him with King Christian or with the the help of the Archbishop. And one of the men who was arrested is Eric Troller, the Archbishop's father, who was briefly regent. So he's going straight after his enemies on the council right away. Another man is Sten Christiansen, commander of Nyshapin Castle. Uh, sorry, there's another Sten there to get confused about. But luckily for Sten Sturer, after a bit of persuasion, the other Sten then gives up his fellow conspirators, including, of course, the Archbishop Gustav Troller, who he says all want to remove Sten Sturer as regent. And, you know, gives up is also possibly a euphemism for tortured out and forced to say this. We're not entirely sure if this is completely legitimate or not, but we do know these people were all enemies of Sten Stura. And this means that Sten Stura does indeed put the Almarasteket fortress under siege. If you're thinking this sounds familiar, then... It's because it is extremely familiar. In 1497, when Svante Nilsson and then Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson rebelled against Stensture the Elder and brought in King Hans, Stensture put the same castle under siege. So it is an archbishop who wants to remove Estensture as regent to replace him with the King of Denmark, having his favorite castle put under siege. Almost everything is a repeat of what happened nearly 20 years ago. It's history literally repeating itself. Almost all the details are the same. This dispute at its heart is an extension of the classic church versus regency or church versus monarch conflict. But where Gustav Troller messes up is by getting Christian involved. Perhaps this could have been solved relatively peacefully if it had just been an internal Swedish affair, but by 1517 everything racks up a notch, because Christian sends a fleet, which he's been gathering since the latest truce between the two countries expired, to help the Archbishop. It landed near Stockholm, but was quickly defeated by the Swedish forces at a great victory at a place called Vedla, where the Swedes capture three Danish banners and then expel the survivors from the country. So this is super dramatic. It just, yeah, the Archbishop calls on the King of Denmark to help him in this battle. And why this was dangerous for the Archbishop was because it dragged this conflict into another conflict that had been ongoing for years. It is now becoming part of the whole nationalist question about the Kalmar Union and Sweden versus Denmark. This then made it extremely easy for Stensture to declare Gustav Trolle not just a political enemy of the Regency, but a traitor to Sweden. It strengthens his position within the country, the council and the four estates. The archbishop's church colleagues see the writing on the wall and give him up politically. They did not want to support him when Stensture can call on decades of political propaganda and ill-feeling and take a stand against the archbishop. And this is exactly what Stensture does, as he calls a meeting of the estates in November 1517 and asks them how he should deal with Gustav Troller, who's still holed up at the castle. 
Stenstura hasn't been able to get the nobles on the council to convict Gustav Troller for treason, as they feared this was all being engineered as a power grab by Stenstura. So even though the, the Danish king is getting involved, people are still thinking this is all being maneuvered and exploited by Stenstura just to get more power for himself. And so, instead of going to the council, Stenstura went directly to the people, bypassing both the church and the nobility. And the estates, you know, sort of that proto-parliament, perhaps unsurprisingly voted in Stenstura the Younger's favour, because they hated Gustav Troller too for a number of reasons. He was voted as a traitor because of his political alliance with Christian, and we've already seen how the merchants and burghers were not exactly happy with the archbishopric as a political and economic entity because it was interfering in their trade between Stockholm and Bergslagen from the very castle in question in this debate. And so, quite logically and sensibly, they demand Stenstura burn down the castle. And they also demand Gustav is removed as archbishop and be imprisoned on charges of treason. So this is extreme. Now comes an extremely important point in the proceedings. In order to make this quite dramatic step seem more palatable to those who might be questioning Stenstura's grip on power at this point, Stan puts forward a legal proposition to this meeting or trial, and he does it with charismatic charisma, giving emotional monologues about what needs to happen next. He makes sure that everyone at the meeting swears common responsibility for the actions and say that they would resist any attempt by the church or the pope to punish them for it. Because this is a civil court wanting to remove an archbishop and demanding military action against church property, or at least property the church claims as their own. This is going against the precedence of the church having responsibility for these actions and supposed crimes. So not only are they judging the archbishop as a traitor, which is a big deal, they're also doing it in a way that isn't allowed in a political secular court judging someone from the church. That should be done in a canonical church court. So Stensture wants to have an outward show of unity by pushing through this swearing in common. Yeah, and this is a move to make sure everyone at the meeting was equally responsible and not just put it all on Stensture's shoulders. It's called a sammansvering in Swedish, so this is a pretty big deal, a common swearing. The act of proclaiming this common responsibility isn't unprecedented, but the actions they're supporting definitely aren't things you do every day, burning down an archbishop's residence and arresting him as a traitor. And of course not everyone is actually happy to do this, they feel like they're being forced into it. And despite signing this common agreement, because politically he really had to make a stand against the archbishop, was the relatively new bishop of Linköping, Hans Brask. And he wants to make sure that his protests against the severity of the punishment and the whole process in general were noted down. He puts his seal to the decision, but then sticks a little note inside the seal which says, Herr till a jag nerd och tvungen, which means, here I am forced and compelled to do this. 
This is a pretty grudging acceptance if I ever heard one. Bishop Brask's little note will return in the story and even make its way into use in the Swedish language today, but that's more for a future episode. Just uh, put a pin in his uh, little note in his seal uh, that he puts on the Samasvägning. But undeterred by any doubts about how well he really is being supported, Stensdorek goes right ahead and follows the direction of the estates. By the end of the year, which is by now 1517, his forces take the castle and burn it to the ground. It is never rebuilt and there are just small bits of remains now in 2024. Archbishop Gustav Trolle is captured, deposed, and imprisoned. He's not a happy man at this point. Okay, so we don't really want to hit you around the head with a stick here, but we really need to emphasise how big a deal this is, both militarily and politically, and also legally. Remember this decision about the swearing in common, because it's one because it is so big, it will be revisited in a big way later on in the story, that's for sure. Now, Christian has an important decision to make down in Denmark. He could potentially cut his losses short here. His man in Sweden has been imprisoned and the Swedish council is now relatively united against Denmark. It would be tough to campaign against Sweden and win at this point. But remember, King Christian is extremely stubborn and likes to get vengeance on his enemies. This means he personally feels like he has no choice but to continue to fight for the Swedish crown, so he launches another attack on Sweden in 1518. Yeah, despite uh, some misgivings in the Danish council that Denmark can't afford to do this, both uh, militarily and economically. But Christian personally commands a fleet of 80 ships with a few thousand Danish and German soldiers and he lands in Sweden and prepares for a repeat of the Battle of Brunke Bay, which his grandfather had lost nearly 50 years previously. Because Christian has recently lost a couple of battles and campaigns and in general doesn't have so much money, his mercenaries are a bit cheap and not as good as normal mercenaries. But Stinstura, seeing this cheap army, still doesn't want to commit to a battle outside the war so Stockholm was placed under siege instead. And after a bit of sieging, Christian gets a bit bored and moves his forces to the south of the city where he starts an artillery bombardment of the walls there with Christian personally in command. In July, after weeks of attacks with his cannons and artillery, Christian finally thinks the walls have been damaged enough to give him a decent shot at taking the city in a frontal attack. But the Swedes defeat the two Danish attacks on the walls that Christian orders, and so Stan Sture thinks that this is now his chance to leave the city and attack the Danes in the rear. In late July, he orders this advance. Danish sources say that the Danes defeated two Swedish attacks, but during the third, the Swedes managed to organise one major assault on the Danish lines. They could not resist the bulk of the Swedish advance, and many German mercenaries were pushed back into a marsh where they were killed. 
The Swedish accounts say that there were various Swedish attempts that were thwarted by Danish sentries and other things like this, but eventually the Danish army were forced to retreat, and during that retreat their heavy cavalry was caught in the swamps and massacred. Whichever way it happened, it was a big victory for the Swedes. Stenstora returned to Stockholm with some prisoners and could celebrate a great success on the battlefield. And here is where we need to introduce a very key person in the story, both of this war against Denmark, but also for many future episodes to come. A young, relatively obscure nobleman possibly fought on the Swedish side of this battle, and according to some now questioned sources, was the soldier who carried the main Swedish banner during the battle. This man's name was Gustav Vasa, and we'll introduce him properly in a future episode, but just so you have it in your mind, there was this one particular person who was involved in this battle, and some of the more older or romantic depictions of this battle also give him a key role. Uh, this is quite heavily contested by modern historians, though. Indeed, but let's talk about that later, because now both forces are retreating up to Stockholm, the Danes to their camp on Södermalm, and the Swedes back to the city itself. The Danes are then quickly put under siege themselves at their base, and after six weeks, things are getting bad. Christian thinks the only way to win now is a sneak attack at night, and he gets ready to commit to his final attack. However, the leaders of the German mercenaries think this is suicide, so they refuse to attack the city. Christian is a little bit annoyed at this, so annoyed, in fact, that he executes the commanders. Yeah, I mean, that seems fair enough. A court-martial for disobeying direct orders. Yeah, I mean, uh, those were the rules. But the Germans refusing to attack mean that the campaign is pretty much over. The Danish men board their fleet under fire from Stockholm and then move out into the archipelago to a pretty random, nondescript place called Askrikefjärden, just north of the island of Lidingö. And almost nobody else listening or reading about this location cares as much about it as we do. That's because this place, Arsrikesfjarden, is about a five-minute walk from our flat here. And our home is now in the story, as the Danes send men ashore to forage for supplies and plunder the local area in order to survive for a little bit longer and just generally annoy Stenstura and the Swedes. I can't get over how amazing this is. Our local neighborhood could have had Danish soldiers walking through it, although there wasn't a neighborhood here at that time, but maybe in the woods behind our flat where we go walking and running, there were Danish soldiers uh, foraging blueberries for uh, survival. It's really sort of local to where we are right now and where we record the podcast every week. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, some there are still a few farms on the island here, so some of those probably go back quite a long time. So maybe they were pillaged by the Danes too, which is amazing to think it's happening literally right here. Yeah, and there's a fleet on the water just outside uh, our flat. Which is super cool. Yeah, go leading her. But um, yes, before long, uh, even though they are gathering up these supplies, Christian realises he needs to negotiate a ceasefire and safe passage back to Denmark. He doesn't have enough men to keep fighting, and his supplies are running low. And the situation isn't looking good for his men, and so luckily, Stensura agrees to some negotiations. 
and these begin, and the two men agree to a temporary ceasefire, and that they would then meet in person, because this is all being done through messengers, a bit later, south of Stockholm, to negotiate a more permanent peace deal. Christian originally wanted to meet Stensdora in person to start right away, but the Swedish regent declined. He wanted a meeting elsewhere, and a bit later on. As was customary at the time, in advance of a meeting between two rulers, the two sides would exchange hostages as an assurance that they would not do anything dodgy at the next meeting. This was an entirely normal occurrence, and so it wasn't that big of a deal that some important Swedish nobles agreed to become part of this hostage swap. Among the six Swedes going over into Danish custody was our old friend Hemingad and our new friend young Gustav Vasa, who may or may not have been part of the recent battle. He is only in his early 20s and is the youngest of the group, in stark contrast to seasoned political operator Hemingad. Yeah, and the Danes are preparing similar hostages from Christian's fleet to go over to the Swedish side. And yeah, this is all to make sure that the the Swedes don't sneak attack the Danes and the Danes don't plunder more Swedish farms before the next meeting. It's just so everybody agrees and doesn't do any silly business. And so Stensdora sits down and plans his negotiating strategy and how he's going to end this conflict with Denmark. At the same time, the Swedish hostages are put on a boat and row out towards the Danish fleet. It would probably have then been a bit of a surprise to the hostages when once they're brought aboard uh, one of Christian's ships, they just sail away. The whole of the Danish fleet just sails away with the hostages. What? Absolutely not part of the plan. Absolutely not part of the plan at all. That would be like you paid a down payment on something and then just ran away with it before you'd pay the entire sum. This is breaking a sort of very fundamental uh, negotiation aspect at the time. They can't just take these guys and head off. Well, they do, because the entire Danish fleet just ups anchor and sails away. Instead of the Swedish hostages meeting their Danish counterparts, uh, you know, midway, halfway across the lake or something, and exchanging some pleasantries, and each going into their respective periods of captivity, the Swedes were just taken prisoner by a Danish warship. They immediately realised they weren't sailing to the peace negotiations, but they're heading home to Denmark. The Danes were just leaving and kidnapping them. Stenster himself only found out when the Danes didn't arrive at the place for the real negotiations. So he's just standing there waiting and then he gets a message saying, oh, oh no, the Danes have gone home with the hostages. Well, what a sneaky chap this Christian is. You definitely do not do this during negotiations. This is a huge betrayal of trust and a violation of all the rules of war and negotiation at the time if you can call them rules at this time, but you can only imagine what Hemingad and Gustav Vasa and the other hostages must have felt at the time as they were seeing the Swedish coastline disappearing. Like, this was not what I signed up for. 
No, absolutely not. And uh, this is a big shock, and it's also a perfect image to end the episode with. The Danish fleet sailing off down south as the Swedish hostages look over the side of the ship back to a Sweden they might never see again. What dramatic cliffhanger right there. You'll have to catch up with us next time to see what happens. You will indeed. And as always, you can get in touch with us in the regular ways on social media and email. You can leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts or maybe tell your colleague, bus driver or electrician what a cool podcast we are. Uh, We know we're getting bigger in Chicago thanks to uh, a few listeners spreading the news about us there. So that's cool. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Always excellent to grow the listenership in various places. But it's now time to say goodbye. We'll see you again soon for more Sweden-Denmark drama. Yes, call the hostage negotiators. <laughs> See you next time. Bye for now. Hey, Dor. that should be done in a canonical church court. So, that was weird. (laughs) My lizard came out.